1: Brian Davis here from Spark Runnel, super glad to be with you. And we have a special treat for you today. We have Dan Dan Zhu with us, who retired at the tender age of 28 with real estate investments. We're actually doing a, a series of these interviews with people who either reached financial independence or retired young with real estate. Last week, we interviewed Tom Brickman. This week, Dan Dan Zhu. And Dan Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. Absolutely. So let's dive right in, and let's let's rewind to the very beginning. To you in your early to mid twenties, you're working a full time job. So tell us about your life before you started investing in real estate.
2: Yeah. So I graduated in 2009, in the middle of the recession, with a finance degree, and I hated <laughs> finance to begin with. So it was no problem. It was kind of perfect because I was like, I think I would suck at it and fail anyways. So somehow I wanted to get rich. That was a goal I had because I don't like being poor. I grew up poor and I don't like it. And I wanted to become very wealthy. And I saw my parents put in a lot of hard work in high school. I used to help my mom with some of her dilapidated homes that we were renting room by room. So I've had a little taste of like the nitty gritty, dirty grunginess of like hands on real estate like work. Yeah. So that was in the back of my mind. I was like, I want to make enough money so that I can invest in real estate. That was always the game plan because it was like, it's not rocket science. It's pretty straightforward. And the USA is the best place to do it for economic reasons. So I thought when I graduated, I was like, I need a high paying job. I need a really high paying job so I can make a lot of money and save it and then buy real estate because at that point, of course, you know, 2011 wasn't when I became a headhunter that time like houses were like really starting to like come back up again they were starting to creep up so i started my career in recruiting it's a high paying sales job and then so by the time i was 25 i was making over two hundred fifteen thousand dollars in that yeah my first year i was on a 35k base in new york city in 2011 and i house hacked right because i'm like as i might as well get some experience and prior to even doing that even in college I was renting out rooms in my family's house because my parents left and I had to pay the bills. And that was what paid for our mortgage. And that's also what paid for a restaurant that I had to manage at the time. So I was doing a lot of these things. My life experiences taught me this was the way to go. So I saved my money really hard by the time i was 23 24 25 i was like living very frugally even though in year 2 of recruiting i was already making over 130k my first year i ended up making about 87k so i was saving all of my money was going right into like stocks equities and like really investments cuz i didn't want to hold it in cash and i was just constantly just like waiting for the real estate opportunity to come and in 2013 I found a place that was being fully gut-renovated in Prospect, Leffert South, which is a troublesome area with a lot of, like, gang violence. So this is the only place I can buy, because in New York City, you're not going to get anything. You can't get a condo for under $400,000. So I wanted a two-bedroom condo. I did not want a co-op. You have to really know your local markets. New York City has tons tons of co-ops. So... Co-ops are obviously a horrible investment. So condo was the way to go. And the only place I saw, I was like, oh, there's this one building in the middle of this random neighborhood that is totally getting renovated. That was the first step. So I bought that. Um, it was fully renovated by 2014. I gained ownership. Um, at this point, I had figured out I'm going to probably like not work for the company forever. I wanted to keep buying real estate and that would be my way out. And then so I bought another house, saved up to buy another condo. This time, Manhattan, Brooklyn, you know, New York City is like no longer feasible. You're not going to see a single condo for even close to like 300 or 400 again. So the first one I bought for $344, 20% down. Rented it out, house hacked, cut up each room, cut out the living room, furnished it, rented it out individually.
1: So you, thought, you moved into that first property and no, got a... Oh, you did not? Okay. No,
2: I still had... I house hacked my whole like decade from my like 23 to like 32. So I had the same apartment that I was house hacking. So I was living. So
1: you were renting out part of it to roommates.
2: Yeah, I was living in the same rental. So I never really encouraged living where you buy because I want other people to pay the mortgage. Right. I, I want them to pay the mortgage. So I rented out, it's a two bedroom. i made the living room into a bedroom and I rented out the living room, rented out the bedroom, rented out the other bedroom. So I had three units pulling for me and i also had my other three bedroom two bath that i was living in and i was renting out the two extra bedrooms so that's okay. how like i didn't really have to pay anything it was just like everything was being covered
1: and that first deal did you finance that with with a conventional mortgage yeah. just a conventional investment property mortgage
2: yeah i think i okay. put down like i think i had to cough up like $90,000 for the down payment I don't. I don't. I just remember it being like around ninety thousand, even though it should, should have been less. But I guess closing costs or whatever. Um, I remember it to be around like ninety thousand was what I had to put down, and my monthly carrying note was like nineteen hundred.
1: Okay. Yeah. So before we go any further with your your real estate investments, um, I, I want to spend a moment just talking about how frugally you were living here because this is a huge key for a lot of new investors and even experienced mm-hmm. investors is just, where does that capital come from for down payments, for real estate investing, for closing costs? And, you know, at Spark Run, we talk all of the time about, you know, house hacking and living frugally and, you know, how to save up that money to invest. Because if you don't have any cash to invest with, you're mm-hmm. just not gonna get anywhere, right? I mean, it, it does take some money. So, yeah. so you were house hacking as one way to save money, living in expensive New York City. What would you say your monthly budget was for, for living on, your, your monthly living expenses?
2: My house hacking price that I paid was about $300 a month. So I mean like your
1: total living expenses. My total uh... living
2: expenses probably under like my car payment was like $170 with insurance would have been like maybe no less, no more than $500. Like I live very cheaply. So like everything was cheap. I don't I don't actually have the exact numbers because eventually I stopped budgeting because I just was not spending a lot anyways. Like I never when I went out partying, I wouldn't drink liquor, for instance. Like when I went out to New York City to go party, I would not drink alcohol. The whole night I would just drink water. Like maybe I'll save into- a
1: lot of money that way.
2: Yeah, like if I bought drinks, it would just be to buy drinks for other people to like Politically, you know, curry favor or whatever, like everything I did was very strategic and like all the furniture I bought was used or Borderline free. Like, I've never purchased a new mattress for myself, for instance. Like, the most expensive mattress I paid for is like the Amazon basics for one of my rental properties, right? Like, me personally, my, my mattress was, I think, it was like $40. So, all these things I'm like saving a lot of money on. Um, I only bought like a few luxury items, but because I was earning such a high amount of income, like, literally, I was making $250,000 a year that year before, you know, that just, I have so much money left over. You know, I, I oh, was yeah. living still very carefully and the monthly rent was the biggest cost. And because my monthly rent is $300, there's just no way you really need to budget on that because I'm making like five figures a month and I'm living off of $300 a month. I don't do, I don't dye my hair, dyeing my hair I, it's black because I'm too cheap to dye it. So <laughs> I don't even go, I go to the salon once a year, like I get a haircut once a year. Like, you know, just these little decisions that you make, re- like, I'll, I'll I'll be so obsessed with saving money that sometimes I'll be obsessing at TJ Maxx, walking around in circles over like $2. Like, it's, it's like <laughs> kind of a compulsion, you know, like at this point. And at, like, now I'm actually like a millionaire. And it's really yeah. horrible still, because some days I literally get sucked into just like Arguing about $10, arguing about $5. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just like, it's a compulsion, like I said. And it never really goes away, especially if you're in real estate, because you're always looking to decrease your costs, always looking to decrease your costs, negotiate. Oh, you
1: always want to do that next deal.
2: Yeah, you always want to save money because you're absolutely right. And like so many of my colleagues made the same amount of money, but their living costs Their rent was $4,000. They would go out and drink and eat each night. Their tab would be like $200, $100. It'd be easy to achieve that in New York. That's like seven cocktails, right? Like over a span of three hours. That's like two cocktails an hour. So, like, it's these things. Like, it's like my first year in recruiting, I was eating hot dogs, I was eating Chinese buns for breakfast that were a dollar a piece. You know, I was eating leftover sushi from the restaurant that was closing and they would give their sushi out for like that's
1: dangerous.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, it was just like little things like that. It was like all these costs. And like I was eating subway sandwiches. Like my first year was the most difficult year because I was on the lowest base. But then once I started making like over six figures, it was a high enough money that like I could still live comfortably again, having house hacked. That was really it, like just not having rental cost, essentially.
1: All right. Well, so tell us about how you scaled up after that first deal uh, and and how your investing strategy changed over time.
2: So that first deal was just a condo. It it had extremely low monthly returns. And same with the second property I bought in 2015 in Jersey City, another two-bedroom condo. At that point, I started having this, you know, 10% rule that everybody follows. So my goal was if I buy something for $180, it has to rent out for $1,800, and then that would be worth it. So it was a short sale. They would list it for like $135 or something. So a bunch of people bid on it, and I bid the most because I was like, I know it rents for $1,800, so I'm willing to pay $180. Like, that's fair to me. So I ended up winning the deal, rented it out, was making $400 a month. Again, very chump change, not really good. And condos really don't yield that much. Obviously, me being in the tri-state, there's only so much to do as a young investor, relatively junior and self-directed investing, where I was really waiting for the appreciation. That was what I wanted. Um, So then I quit my job in 2016 because at that point, The housing market had jumped up so much that Brooklyn condo in 2016, January, I actually was dating a guy who we broke up very soon, but he was like, you should sell. His family's in real estate. He's like, this is a peak. You should sell. And so
0: actually,
2: (laughs) relationship didn't work out, but the vice was good. So I sold it and it was sold for $615,000. At that point, it was two years so I could do a 1031.
1: Yeah. So so you made... Two hundred fifteen thousand dollars in equity in just two years on that on that Brooklyn condo.
2: More than that, two hundred seventy thousand dollars in equity. That's great. In two years, yeah, off of a ninety thousand dollar investment. So ninety thousand. Oh, that was
1: so your second property, or no, uh,
2: that was the I, first-
1: I, your ninety thousand dollar cash investment.
2: Yep, uh, I, I, yeah. invested, I got my ninety thousand back, and I got my two hundred seventy one. So now right. I have three hundred something. So now for one Brooklyn condo in a location that still today you don't get much of a spread today. If you were to buy that same condo, it would still be, it might be 600,000. Like that area has not gone anywhere. It's still the same as it was in 2016. So I sold that really the best time. Um, okay. And 2016, it was like, you'd be stupid not to get that money out. Right. Cause it's like $300,000, like freaking take it out and put it somewhere else. Like New York, I'm getting like nothing on the rental. I'm like barely making any money. On the yeah, yields dashboard.
1: in New York City are uh, notoriously bad.
2: Terrible. Terrible. And so I knew it was the appreciation play, right? So we got that money out. And then I got two uh, homes in Baltimore because okay. at that point, it was like, where where the worst press is, is where I'm going to get the best deal. And in 2016, it was Baltimore. Baltimore was having some really awful press. So I was like, still from Baltimore. Still are. Still are. Still one of the best places to invest, but not anymore from an Airbnb perspective which is eventually where I kind of turned to. So at the time though I didn't understand Airbnbs. I was still like traditional long term, you know, 20% down, that kind of thing. But with that with that first condo being sold, now I have this 300 some thousand and I also need to take out some debt because of the 1031 rules, I have to exceed $615,000, right? Whatever you leave behind is whatever you have to replace if not exceed in a 1031 exchange, to get the full exchange benefits. So I ended up getting those two uh, single, one was a single family home, one was a two family home. And then also another condo in Massachusetts. Because at this point, I have a formula. I just buy in these kind of like tertiary, you know, cities next to big cities. So like New York City, I'll buy Jersey City in Journal Square, right? It's like a tertiary city off of a big city. Same with Chelsea, Massachusetts. It's off of Boston. It's not in Boston, it's off of Boston. It's close enough, right? So that was like my strategy. It's like buy these buildings, these areas are up and coming because the city limits are kind of pushing people out, right? Yeah. Appreciations moving people out. And I just thought I had this Midas touch and it was just going to keep going. Um so this Massachusetts condo I bought for like 189, put in 6,000, got some tenants in, but then very soon I started learning how bad condos are because I lucked out on the first two. I lucked out big time. Like it was easy condo association. I never saw them. Didn't have to go to the meetings. Then this Chelsea one, this lady owns like 30 of them. Like she owns like a big amount. So number one, it's like not financeable, which is problematic. If you want to get a high appreciation reward and you have to deal with her. And she's the one in control of everything. And she has her kids in there sitting on the board. So now it becomes like a, I'm a very much a David and she's very much a Goliath. And to have your money kind of held hostage by a terrible association leader who is essentially um, a monopolizing the whole complex has you buy the B-A-L-L-S, <laughs> it's not a comfortable feeling. Like, so that's when I started learning like, this is, this is a gamble, this is just not great. Um, So at this point, I had already quit my job. I have these like four homes. And then I have $40,000 left in the bank. And I saw this $145,000 house for family in Vermont, in Southern Uh Vermont. And that was when I was like, this is too good of a deal. One of the units was like fully renovated. So my dad and I went up. um, I ended up getting my cousin in to co-sign the loan. Because at this point, I'm self-employed. It's very hard to get financing. Right. So my cousin loops and I wasted the rest of my savings. I had to take 10,000 from her to even qualify, you know, have the down payment. Um, and we went in on this together. And okay. so she's a minority stakeholder. Um, she's a total silent partner. She doesn't do anything. Uh, this is more of like a savings account for her kind of idea. And that was when I first started eventually 2018 converting that into Airbnbs. And after the success of seeing Airbnbs at work, Now my strategy is all Airbnbs. Now I bought and sold, bought and sold uh, like 12 properties at this point. Now I currently own, I think it's like six homes now um, with the plan of demolishing one, totally rebuilding it. Again, the strategy is full on migration into Airbnbs.
1: So Um, did you sell those two properties in Baltimore and the one property in Chelsea, Massachusetts?
2: Chelsea, Massachusetts. I sold that right around COVID. I sold at... Two hundred twenty-two thousand. she got in the way of me selling it for more and basically mm-hmm. blocked buyers from like seeing the condo documents being very irresponsible so i financially i got a pretty bad game like a average return if not like under average return um
1: at least at least you came out on top though yeah I mean, sometimes yeah. you can really get in trouble uh yeah. when you have a, a non-cooperative uh condo association like that. That's actually that's why I've never liked investing with condo associations. Is yeah. it just adds that extra wrinkle, right? That extra dimension, you know, that is outside of your control. I'm currently um, in that
2: problem now. I have another condo that I bought during COVID. I bought two condos during COVID, one in Denver, which I've since offloaded. Again, okay. very low return. I bought it for 114, sold it for 124. But I had a tenant. It's it's just like again, bad condo. Like there was poop in the actual laundry rooms. Homeless oh. people were sleeping. In their laundry. <laughs> like it was just stuff like that. It was just like this is ridiculous. And I was just like, I need to sell. I need to get that money out. Like I just don't even. I just, I see no point in sitting here and waiting and praying for the appreciation. Appreciation plays are just not not good anymore. They used to be really good. They're not very good anymore. So I'm well, done. With- in a
1: cooling market, <laughs> as, as it appears we're entering into now. Yeah. It
2: um, is. And then I bought a DC condo. I'm going to lose money on that. That I bought for 94 5 I'm, I, I'm under contract to sell it for 90 And at this point, I just want the cash. These were all cash buys. So I just want my cash out so I could use it for other stuff. But um, the Baltimore place, I sold one. I kept the two family. That one's okay. a traditional brownstone. It's appreciated by over six figures. So that That's one right. I'm holding on for
1: a while. Out of curiosity, where in Baltimore is it?
2: Right in Reservoir Hill.
1: Okay. So I'm guessing that you don't use that as an Airbnb. No. Yeah. yeah. Baltimore. it's not really a touristy area.
2: Well, Baltimore, anywhere can be Airbnb friendly. Airbnbs are amazingly versatile, but um it's really down to the city laws. Baltimore has terrible Airbnb laws. They're not friendly towards Airbnbs, which is yeah. a humongous missed opportunity. And it's. Oh, yeah. I can talk hours about how stupid cities and states are if they dare limit airbnbs and how that can actually be a positive change for their cities um but that's a different topic so i gave i immediately sold and that's why when i sold i didn't make that much money i bought the single family for 135 sold it for like 165 again not amazing returns it's because of third party interference right like if the government wasn't involved and allowed airbnbs the prices would be much higher because that place was right next to johns hopkins so you know it's full on you know there's some macroeconomic influences that definitely hurt returns
1: yeah and you know baltimore is it's really it's one of the worst governed cities in the country uh, I, I can say that because i'm from there and i used to invest in real estate there uh, but very anti-landlord with their yeah. regulations and laws it's one of the things that denny and i talk about all the time is we discourage people from investing in cities with anti landlord laws you know they're super super tent friendly with their laws you end up getting burned as a real estate investor there
2: um, yeah. i actually didn't mind it as much just because like the court system i had to do a ton of evictions in baltimore one after the other right. it was kind of like fine because the you could get someone else to go go for you and do it which was really cool other cities and states you'd have to personally show so like that was kind of fun where you could hire (laughs) your evictions and then the sheriff would like force the people to like pay on the day and then sometimes i would get my money that way so but i think again it was just like a combination of me being a junior investor as well and baltimore just not having a lot of people with good jobs so you have to wait a long long time for a good tenant and i could not afford to wait any longer Oh, well, your to-
1: vacancy rate impacts your returns. I mean, yeah,
2: yeah. So it goes
1: into the calculus
2: for sure. It was it was just me being unprepared and being a little bit of a junior investor.
1: So, what do you look for in Airbnb properties?
2: Mm-hmm. Airbnb properties have to be in a safe location, so it has to be in a well-presented street and area. I think for you, you have to decide. How much money do you want to spend? And what kind of returns do you want? And then kind of work backwards and look at which markets yield what? Because like, for instance, Long Island, you can get like five, $600 a night, but like you have to do the math. Like, can I afford an 800,000 to a million dollar home to get those returns? Right. right. So for me, I, I'm a cheap investor. I like investing in homes that are maybe cash buys for under 150, right? So for a long time, I was like Atlantic City. That is where it's at. I still stand by that. Atlantic City is a fantastic place to invest in Airbnbs. Not that so I do You've it. Had good yields there. I have not personally, but I have looked into the market. I wanted to. I tried multiple times, but one deal fell through. Seller got greedy. Another deal, I was outbid. And I just haven't, it just hasn't worked out. And I just happened to use that money instead on a lake house in Albany, like west of Albany. And that was just an opportunistic buy. Like I'm always looking at like real estate prices, like which place has houses for under 200 grand that are good. And then also just check out, like what are the Airbnb rates around that area? If your property is cheap, you can never lose because you're already at the bottom. So that lake house I bought was $127,000. I was like, this is so cheap. It's a lake house. I mean, most lake houses in the Northeast are 250 dollars to 350. dollars I know because I looked at every single lake in the Northeast. Like, I literally will go sit at Trulia and look at Poconos. And I literally will go on trips. I'll go to Poconos to, like, talk to real estate agents. And, like, I looked at that market. I made an offer, got outbid, was like, I'm not competing. Like, I'm not in a rush, right? Because Airbnb is so much work that unless my my rate is very low i don't even want to like put in the work because then right then i end up like paying a lot and doing all this work so i want to find a really really good deal and i'm just going to patiently wait for that really good deal but it just happened to be this random lake house that was a short sale owners in a senior home care center three years hasn't been living there very dead area nothing going on but our lake and i i we did a lot of projections and we'd like you never really know until you set up the property, but it was a two-bedroom, two-bath, three-bedroom, two-bath. So you know the occupancy is going to be very high. It could be at least 10 people. And that's important for Airbnb returns is like the occupancy rate. There's no math. There's no formula. I just like to buy cheap properties. And because I keep buying cheap, I always make money because your, your denominator is so low.
1: So we've got a a question from the audience here. Rebecca Taylor asks, how do you see the recession impacting the short term rental market for vacationers? Uh, If if we're even in a recession, that's a whole other conversation. But (laughs) assuming that we, yeah, a a cooling economy, uh, Mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it. uh, How do you see that impacting the short term rental market uh, for vacation homes?
2: it's really bad if you have a million dollar house in long island it's just really bad if you have a high value property going into a recession this is why real estate you always have to buy low like because you never know you just never know what's gonna happen at least that's my view my my risk tolerance is very low even though i'm actually very risk-taking my i'm very conservative so i'm like this house is 127000 dollars We put in $35. It didn't cost us, you know, over $170. Even in the worst case scenario, the carrying cost is like eight to twelve hundred a month. I can afford that. So that to me is a safe investment because I can afford if you add up all of my carrying costs, it's not more than like seven or eight thousand off of like you know, six homes and 15 apartments. It's because I buy cheap. So it's, it's really cheap. The carrying cost is very cheap. And when you have a cheap carrying cost, you never have to worry about the economy because you can literally have a sit vacant. So you have to be in a very financially positive situation where you have a good income coming in. That's your real safety net, is still having some other hustle. That's what I right. learned from real estate. You cannot survive off of real estate alone. You just never can't because a roof will cost you 15000 Like this will cost you that. That will cost you that. It comes at you from nowhere. If you don't have like a good day job, like a good full-time hustle, r- real estate becomes v- – that's what I personally experienced when I was 28, when I had four properties and evictions. It was like I was living in debt. It's not enough. So anyways, back to your question about short-term rental. <laughs>
0: if,
2: if your rate is really low, your carrying cost is really low, you can drop your price. You can drop your price. You can drop your nightly rates. You can do long-term rentals. So that's been good. I've had long-term people come in um, and that was the four family. So one unit is like 2,000. The other ones, yeah, also like 2,100. So right there, the mortgage is 1,300. So already you're, again, you buy properties that are so good that no matter what happens, you're insulated.
1: Right. You have enough meat on the bone that you, you can drop the your rental rates and mm-hmm. and still come out cash flow positive. And to your point about lower cost properties, when you enter a recession, some people are no longer going to be able to afford the, the high end properties, right? So where do they go? They don't move out to the street, they move into more affordable housing. And in the case of, you know, rental or vacation rentals, you know, maybe they stay in more affordable places to rent, maybe Airbnbs instead of hotels, right? Or maybe more affordable Airbnbs, more affordable lake houses rather than the ritzier stuff.
2: No, I will say it is scary because a lot of, I am seeing an uptick in applicants on Airbnb guests. uh, You have to be very careful as an Airbnb operator today because there are a lot of scammers who want to like potentially squat. So this is definitely happening right now where people are like, hey, this happened to me. I would love to stay like. I got hurt many times as a junior investor, being a bleeding heart. You cannot be a bleeding heart in the landlord business. Like yeah. it, it the, the weirder the sob story, the more it's believable, and the tenants know it. So they'll just tell you the most heart-wrenching, saddest stories. One lady told me that she lived in a satanic building that was haunted <laughs> and the baby was murdered there and she's having nightmares. And please, 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 can I help her? And I fell for it. And she squatted and lived in my house for a couple months until I got her out. And- She threatened to kill me with a gun. Like, it's just stuff like this that like you Airbnbs, you have to be very careful to charge them a high deposit. That's how you prevent that. Because if they're like a zero review, it doesn't mean that they're a bad tenant. It just means you need to ask them for a high, high deposit. Even if they have reviews for long-term stays, I asked for a thousand dollars deposit, really just to test. If they have the money and if they do, then it's usually like, okay. But again, it's, it's like, you're sweet spinning the wheel every time. Cause you never know come their checkout date. Are they really going to be gone? Like you're a little bit nervous. So I think it's a very dangerous time for Airbnb operators to be wowed by short-term long-term stays where it's like one month long-term stays like X dollars. Be careful to like really look into the guests a little bit more. Um, Cause they're been right. an uptick in this behavior.
1: And depending on your state and local laws, someone, they qualify as a tenant at a certain point instead of a guest and have to be evicted instead of removed as a trespasser. So you have to be careful about that with long-term stays.
2: If it happens, I'm going to buy a gun and I will, I'm sorry, I'm going to do, and I've heard a lot of my Airbnb friends say this. They're like, if it happens to me, we're going to buy guns. We're going to show up with the whole crew. (laughs) Like we don't give a crap. Yeah. The government's not going to help you with this. Like they will not I don't know what's going to happen. I hope to God it never happens to me, but if it does, I don't know what I'm going to do. Brian, you might see me in the front page news. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I've been burned a bunch of times as well by sob stories. And you know, at a certain point you just realize as a real estate investor and as a landlord that you need to operate completely as a business, zero emotion. I mean, you, you need to operate like at the bank, basically. Um, you know, if someone's late, they get the notice they're out, you know, um, with due process, of course, but that due process takes a long time. Uh, you know, as you know, from filing evictions, I mean, in some areas like Baltimore, it can take many months to get rid of bad tenants. And anyway, that's a whole nother, <laughs> uh, you know, tangent to go down.
2: real estate investing that they don't touch.
1: <laughs> exactly. So Rebecca has a follow-up question. Uh, do you still have a day job other than real oh. estate? Um, because we talked about how you retired from your, your, your day job years ago, but My understanding is that you have launched a new business for yourself. Yeah. Uh,
2: Yeah. So in 2018, I had already retired for two years. At this point, real estate, I didn't want to sell any of my properties. And I had like a million plus if you add up everything. I could have done that, but I don't want to sell. And I need real estate. It's all like um, stuck, right? All your money's stuck.
1: Very non-liquid.
2: Yeah. it's It's not liquid at all. And you don't want to borrow against yourself. To like live. Um so I have very high financial goals. Like a lot of people, I think when they do the fire thing, I heard about fire financial independence retire early. I heard about it and I'm like a lot of people doing that game, they're happy with like less than a, a million dollars like net worth and they don't want 10 million. They don't want 20 million. But I personally mean right, like fire. Yeah. I, I want big fire. I want like boss Fat fire. fire. I want fat fire. Right. So I <laughs> me um, too. Yeah, I was like, hey, I was like, let me see what retirement looks like. And to be honest, I missed recruiting. I love recruiting. I'm very good at it. It's a passion and it prints money. Like if you're a good headhunter and you know how to do it, it prints. I am five figures a deal, right? So I was like randomly prospected by one of my old colleagues who was like, you know what needs a recruiter? Recruiters. Like actually recruitment agencies They need headhunters because there's nobody that understands the business enough to like recruit qualified headhunters to move agencies. So I started my recruiting business in 2018. Really fun journey, ups and downs. COVID really kind of shook things up. But I had that recruiting income, which was critical because that four family, my tenant, my elderly tenant upstairs who's since gone on to go to a nursing home, she at the time Clogged up the toilet, which destroyed the whole bottom unit. That was like sixty thousand dollars to rebuild.
1: Because wow, I have a clogged toilet.
2: For a clogged toilet, destroy the whole bottom unit, like <sighs> all the way to the basement. Like the whole bottom unit needed renovation anyways. And Airbnb people have a very high standard. If it's not renovated well, they will leave terrible reviews. You will not get high nightly rates. So with the recruiting job, with the recruiting business that I had at this point, it's mine. My own it. So every deal that comes through, other than the cost of running the business, which is very low, flows to me and my partners. And I put it into fixing that unit. So having a day job, I think is really important. And it's an elective choice because I want more. I need more to get more. With this business I have, I can get more loans in the future. And I'll have two, like 200 plus figure incomes coming in. Because I own my own practice as a headhunter, I worked my own hours. My clients and my candidates, I handle them myself. So there's no real like job feeling. It's very entrepreneurial. I have a whole course on recruiting. Recruiterprep.com, we've released that as well. So I have multiple business. I'm going to set up trainings. I'm going to set training revenue streams. You know, so I'm just getting started. Recruiting and real estate is the foundation. Both of these disparate business entities. Um, and then I'm going to add on training and coaching on top of that. My goal is to get very, very rich.
1: Well, it's, you are clearly on your way. And you know I just wanted to highlight a couple of things you just said there. You know, One, that it really helps to have many sources of, of cash flow and revenue here, both real estate wise, but also outside of, of real estate as well. And not only does it help you keep your personal lights on, but it also makes it easier to get financing to do those those next real estate deals. So yeah, no, I'm a huge believer in that. And, you know, a day job is even the wrong way of putting it because it's not, yeah. you know, like a ball and chain, you know, nine to five thing. It's uh, like you said, it's something that you control. It's your baby. You can work as many hours as, as you want. You know, that's it, it's a model that, that Denny and I follow as well. We have a business, but we get to, you know, also invest in real estate and, and we get to work as few or as many hours as we want on Spark Rental. And, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like we are tied down with yeah. it. It's, it's fun. Yeah. So uh, the image, I want is to be like rest- one
2: hand, sorry, the image I have is like one hand washes the other, right? You have real estate, you have something else. It could be computer programmer. Like I know other real estate investors who are like literally like, you know, Java developers or like compute technologists and they invest in real estate. Like it's, it's just, you need something. If you want to play and keep playing, you need more money. And it, unless you're going to go and syndicate and ask other people for money, you have to make it yourself. So there has to be some other thing you do to like keep the keep that tap going, so you can build that snowball effect. A lot of recruiters are in real estate because it's the same skill set. It's people. It's challenging business conversations. So there's actually quite a few other headhunters who hit me up, and they're like, "Oh, I'm also in real estate. I also have <laughs> They, they mostly do long-term rentals, but I also have a client of mine. She does Airbnb's, so she has a recruitment practice, a legal recruitment business. She's self-employed. She has some people working for her, and she has very nice, really nice Airbnbs, like luxury lake houses and cabins. And so, there's a lot of people out there doing this.
1: Yeah, no, they are totally complementary skill sets, and complementary as far as bringing in revenue, like you said. I mean, actually, as as a little side giggle for fun on the side, I do freelance writing and stuff. Um, yeah. You know, so but you know, it all reinforces each other, and you know, at the risk of using like corporate speak, I mean, there, there's synergy there in you know <laughs> all, all of these different sources of of funds and revenue all reinforcing mm-hmm. each other. Totally. Well, then I, I want to be respectful of of your time. We've taken up a lot of your time today, but where can people connect with you? If if they want to learn more about you, what you're doing real estate wise, what you're doing recruiting yeah. and headhunting wise, where can people connect with you?
2: The best is just to follow my website, d-a-n d-a-n-z-h u.com. There you'll have all the access to like the different social media links. I haven't put out a real estate course yet, but it's on the to-do, but on LinkedIn and also on my website. I do post a lot about real estate and recruiting and other stuff like personal stuff. Um, And there's just a lot of information that I pump out daily. I write daily. Uh, Writing, to your point, is such a great skill as a business person. So I like to just put out As much content as I can. I also have a podcast, DG Recruit Podcast, and I also have another podcast, Daily Dandan Podcast. I don't really do that one anymore, but there's enough on there with real estate, with like life, success, money, you know, whatever have you. um, Basically, covering everything we talked about today.
1: Oh, that's great! And we'll link to dandanzoo.com in the uh, comments as well. Well. Dan, Dan, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. And stay in touch. Keep us posted on your next projects. and we'll have to bring you back on the podcast sometime soon to uh, hear about what happens next.
2: <laughs> thank you so much for having me, Brian.
1: All right, guys. Well, we will see you next Tuesday at 2 o'clock Eastern. In the meantime, stay in touch. Let us know what you want to hear about and we will catch you on the flip side.
0: Did you know we offer a free eight video course on how to reach financial independence with real estate? It's super bingeable with each video around 10 minutes long